For a very long time, every single year, hundreds of thousands of Israelites would chant the words to a psalm aloud as they ascended into the mountains of Jerusalem at Passover time. And what those words were is that I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, for our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And I love that so much in terms of the attitude of God's people as they come together, that I did not resent it, I did not avoid it, but I was glad when they said to me, I was happy when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And this morning we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. And what's going on in the book of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 is the Apostle Paul is explaining who God is. And yet what I love so much about Ephesians chapter 4 though is that there's a transition and now the Apostle Paul is, is now explaining who we are as the church. Or perhaps more accurately who we can be if we welcome the Lordship of Christ Jesus to transform us into his likeness. And there in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, here is what that transition says about us, his church. Where the apostle says that I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then if we go to the very end of chapter 4, we drop down there, starting in verse 31, what he says is, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so he uses a couple words here, and the very first word that he uses there in verse 1 is the word therefore. And so what he's saying to us is, therefore, since God has done so much for us, how therefore, as a result of his divine power being at work within us, which is able to do far more than ever we could ever ask or imagine, he's saying, conduct ourselves as those who are possessed by the kingdom of heaven and by the Sermon on the Mount. Well, he uses another word, and that word is calling. That, that as Christian men and Christian women, we, we have received a calling from God himself. And what's interesting about its definition in the Greek language is that that word calling as it appears literally means an invitation to a banquet. And as all of us Christians know, assuredly, this is, is an invitation to the feast of rescue. It's an invitation to the banquet of transformation where we take on the love and the gentleness and the transformation which only comes from Christ Jesus in us. And what we notice in Ephesians chapter 4 are, are all of the descriptions of the children of God that the Apostle Paul refers to. And as I reflect on my own individual life, you know, yes, it's true that there have been many people who have inflicted unspeakable harm upon me. And many of those people tragically were in churches. And yet, you know, it's the lovely examples 
of the ones who, who come to my mind as the Apostle Paul refers to these descriptions. These are the examples that I think about when I lie down at night. Where the very first of these descriptions that he refers to is humility. And it reminds me so much of, of Christians who I've known. I mean, just very wise men and women of faith who, who knew more about God and more about his scriptures than, than I will ever know in three lifetimes. And yet they did not look down upon me or, or on other people as if they, they were, were above us. They did not look, look at us as the, as the rich aristocrats looked down upon all of the poor individuals and the peasants on the bottom deck of the Titanic. And yet rather what they did was just like Jesus, they, they had emptied they themselves of, of all of their human pride and they considered we as being above them. And yet another description of the children of God is, is all of those who have a gentleness about them and a tender heart. Whereas we look at one another in the church, we do not try to minimize what others might be experiencing in their life, struggles that they're facing, but, but rather what we do is, is we acknowledge how your pain is very real and legitimate. And yet we acknowledge that other person's pain up to the point where, where now it starts feeling as if it's my own pain and my own trauma. Scripture says that when one member of the body of Christ is celebrating that how the entire body of Christ rejoices with them. And just the same as even one member of the church of Jesus is heartbroken, is weeping. It says that the entire body stands with them, sits with them in the darkness and weeps along with those who also in turn weep. And yet he, and yet he uses another description and that is those who have a patience about them where I'm sure that every one of you could look at me and, and a lot of Christians look, look at one another and, and it's like, I have seen you at your worst. Sometimes you drive me absolutely crazy and nuts, but you know what? As I look into your eyes, I don't see a failure or an annoyance or a nuisance. When I look into your eyes, I see the face of Jesus looking back at me. And when I look into your eyes, I can also see a reflection of my own face. And that is a very graphic reminder that, that I'm not exactly flawlessly emulating Christ Jesus yet either. How I also have a lot of growing up to do in Jesus. And when we have a patience like this for one another, we can walk into any assembly of God. And, and what, what wells up in us is, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. This is the house of the Lord. And yet he uses a, yet another description, and that description is, is that we, we are, are among those who are bearing with one another with love and with forgiveness. Where again, as we look at each other as fellow Christians, it's like I have seen the darkness of this world. I've been wronged over and over and over again in this world. But you know what? Time in this world is just so vitally short. And so I, I, I choose to look at you and to treat you with love and with forgiveness. Because I need it too. 
And again, as I reflect on my, my life, I mean, I, I was so accustomed to always being made to feel as if every, every single thing that I said was wrong, everything that I did was wrong. I have encountered many people in the church throughout time who, who felt it was their God-given gift to convince me that I was absolutely worthless and incompetent. And yet those are not the individuals who I dwell on. At least I try not to dwell on those experiences. But, but rather what, what I, I remember the absolute most though are all those other individuals in this church as well as elsewhere in other churches who just walk up to me and say, David, I love you. David, you are so special to me. And I mean, you... You can't even begin to imagine how powerful those words are to a person who is still, at 36 years of age, scraping together his self-esteem. I mean, that's enormous. That, that gives me a sense of, of, of a purpose and that I belong here and that, that I'm doing what I need to be doing. It gives me dignity. I remember as I had started being a minister and just before I wanted to go to a seminary, I, I had people in my life who were saying to me, David, it's, it's cute that you want to be a preacher, but let's face reality, you don't have what it takes to be a minister. You could never possibly be a minister, so just go do what, what your calling actually is. And yet, again, I don't dwell on that stuff. And that's because I've had so many more examples of, of Christians who have absolutely been in my life surrounding me, saying, listen, I don't know what other people have said to you before, but, but you are doing what God put you on this planet to do. You are so gifted. And, and I mean, all of a sudden, I went from, from actually feeling as if I were an inch tall. Suddenly, I felt as if I was larger than Goliath himself. Another description that the Apostle Paul uses at last is, is that we are eager to maintain harmony and unity and to have a sense and to have a peace about us in the church. And we remember John chapter 17, just before Jesus is arrested, what, what he's praying for, the very forefront of his prayer is, is Lord, I, I want all of those who one day will believe in me to be one. And sure enough, as we come to the book of Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says that, that all of those who were in the church were of one heart and of one voice. And this is, I mean, this will forevermore be an answer to the Lord's prayer. And yet, you know, I think a main reason why the Apostle Paul is specifically harping on, on having harmony as he writes to the um, Ephesian church it's because this was a congregation comprised of Jewish people and Gentile people. I mean, it, in this first century setting, this would be like lighting a match and dropping it on gasoline. I mean, these two just do not belong together under any circumstances. And yet, as this Ephesian church had experienced, though, when, when we live humbly with regards to one another, when we have a gentleness and a patience and a tender heart about us, as we bear with one another in love and, and, and with forgiveness, when we have a keen eagerness to maintain harmony and to have a peace, Jesus brings everybody together in his church. 
And you see, this is why his church, by far, without question, is the single most unique group of people that will ever walk this earth. And that's because we will forevermore be this motley crew of, of all these people who are comprised of, of all kinds of vastly different generations, personalities, ethnicities, political persuasions, you name it. And it's like the outside world looks at the church and is like, how in the world do you get Gen Z kids to live in harmony with the silent generation? I mean, how do you get white people and black people to, to live in harmony with one another and to love each other as brothers and sisters? How do you get a type A extrovert and combine them with a type B introvert like me and get them to live in harmony with one another? Republicans and Democrats, dogs and cats, whatever it is, Jesus brings everybody together when we live with these qualities blazing within our souls. And yet, it's Jesus, though, who shows us how this is done. Where it is in our human nature to look down on anybody who we strongly have a disagreement with. We have names that we like to call them sometimes. And yet, in Matthew's Gospel, we are told that as Jesus looked down upon this vast multitude of people, and they felt so dispirited, and it says that as Jesus looks down upon them, it says that he has a compassion for them. Likewise, as Jesus speaks to the rich young ruler, Jesus knows that he's 45 seconds away from walking away from Jesus, grieving, having rejected him. And yet, as he began speaking to Jesus, just before he walks away from him, it says Jesus had been looking at him and Jesus felt, felt a love for this man in his soul. And I don't know about you, but as I listen to all of those, those examples of Jesus, I realize that I've got a lot of growing up to do. How about you? I mean, that's how I want to look at anybody who I have a strong you know, a disagreement with. What this means is that if you are a Christian, this is how we have to look at that transgender cashier working at Starbucks, who everybody else in the restaurant is laughing at and, and is staring at and is snapping a picture of, that we look into the faces of anybody in this world, no matter who they are or what they've done in the past, and we have a compassion in our soul for that person and that we feel a love for them as we look, at, look into their face. It's in our human nature to have the opinion that, you know, the greatest one among us is going to be the loudest, most aggressive one among us. And yet as Jesus is asked a question of that nature, who is the greatest by his understudies, the way that he answers it is he just silently stands up from his chair of honor, gets down on his hands and knees, and he starts washing his understudies' blackened feet. I mean, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as a servant, as a slave, this is how you achieve greatness in my kingdom, he says. And I think the most beautiful example that I have ever seen in terms of, of actually seeing this lived out before my eyes came when I was a teenager. And I was at a church in Arizona, and 
we had a kid in our youth group, and every time that we would go on a road trip, he would always have car sickness. And, and sure enough, on this one particular road trip, he starts throwing up all over the church van. I mean, I'm not going to get too descriptive, but I mean, just use your imagination. You know, all the smells and the warmth, it just, you know, everybody was just getting as far away from his throw up as we could. And yet that is except for just one girl in our youth group whose name had been Nicole. While everybody else, myself included, had been getting as far away from his throw up as they could, she was moving as close as she could to his throw up. She gets down on her hands and knees and just, just really quietly whips out a towel out of a backpack and just quietly scrubs and she cleans it all away. And she made a person who felt one inch tall feel as if I really belong with these people. And she said, I love you this much. And yet as Jesus looks at his society of that day, which only do good to those who do good to you. What his answer was, do unto others as you would want them done unto you. And I mean, when we live in this way, we change the world one individual at a time. And yet I think that a main problem, though, is when we read a passage like we have just read in Ephesians chapter 4, where there is very clear instruction given to, to um, a church, we almost always envision 9 to 11.30 a.m. on Sunday morning inside an auditorium. And I think culturally, our perception of the house of the Lord is predisposed to these lofty visions of giant steeples, of padded pews, and wooden pulpits sparkling in a religious palace, where all of those who enter in are dressed as lawyers and senators. And yet, all that the church has ever needed and will ever need are just three things. All that the church ever has or ever will need is bread, is a cup, and is the words and the spirit of Jesus Christ filling every single soul as we worship his lordship with one heart and with one voice. And yet, really, everything else in addition to that is expendable. I think a lot of times we leave an auditorium after a worship assembly and we, we drive home and a, and a switch is, is shut off in our minds. And we shut off worship and we shut off the words of Jesus until the next appointed time. And yet, what impression I, I had in the text more than anything in this week is that there is in fact a church that is even more important than any church that meets in an auditorium on Sunday morning. And that is the church that lives in our house. Now we have just read instruction that had been given to congregations here in Ephesians 4. And yet this applies nowhere more than it does to our homes, to our marriages, to, to our relationships with the people we live with. Is that we begin seeing our, our homes, our marriages, and our parenting as even more church as we are right now on Sunday morning. And as it pertains to the washing of the feet of our brothers and sisters, 
as it pertains to doing unto others as we would have them do unto us, and, and as it pertains to looking at other people and having compassion for them, feeling a love for them as we look into their face. These do even more wonders when we no longer exclusively restrict them to the pews of our cathedrals, but we take them home with us into the couches of our living room. I know that for a lot of us, our spouses and our children have been the only human presence that we have had as of late, a lot of us at least. Tensions are, are at an all-time high. Anxiety is at an all-time high. Fear is at an all-time high. And I was reading in the news how domestic abuse is soaring to an all-time high right now with all, all of the anxiety and the tensions. And yet ever since March, I have, I have caught myself slowing down my thinking process more than, than ever before. Just to slow down to the point of really asking myself, is what I'm about to say to my wife out of love? Or is this my debt talking? Is what I'm, is what I'm about to actually do reflecting the grace of Jesus Christ? Or is this my trauma speaking? Is this me acting out of my fear and taking it out on my wife unfairly? And I decided a long time ago, but especially lately more than ever before, that, that I will not speak to my wife unless it, it, it is gentle, it is peaceful, and it is sweet. Now, it does not mean that we're not going to make mistakes or that we're going to make remarks that we, we are instantly going to regret. We're not going to be flawlessly perfect. And yet, when we take humility, gentleness, tenderheartedness, patience, bearing with one another in love and forgiveness, and we are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace in our marriages, in our houses... We will drive away from any worship service on Sunday morning. We will pull into our garages and what, what will well up in us is, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And that's because I am in the house of the Lord right now. And I just want to say to anyone who will be listening to this later on, for all of those who have unbelieving spouses and children who have not yet obeyed the gospel, I want you to know more than anyone that, no, you are not a failure. You are not a failure. Do not lose heart in exemplifying Jesus to your, your spouse or your children. And that's because they are in church every single day of the week. They are in the presence of Jesus Christ all the time. And that's because they've got you. And so keep showing up. Keep following Jesus more than you did the day before. One day at a time. One day at a time. And they will, will be absolutely amazed. You will be amazed as well at what unfolds. As we bring this all to a close this morning, for all of those who want their, their house life and their marriages and their parenting to more resemble church. I just want to invite us to a couple of things 
in the days ahead. One, maybe instead of watching four hours of CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or reality TV, whatever it is you and I watch on a nightly basis, maybe we just cut that half an hour short, 20 minutes short, and we sit down with just our spouse or just our children, and we take the Lord's Supper together as a family on a Monday night, on a Wednesday morning, on a Saturday afternoon. Or for all of those who have a fire pit in your backyard, go out there and just quietly and gently sing to Jesus together. Now I know that more than likely sounds very awkward and very weird to, to a lot of people. And yet, if we will actually do that, I mean, actually do that as a family, then we might just be amazed at what unfolds in our marriage and in our domestic life. In the past week, how that looked like in my life was, okay, what Jesus says is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I realized that if I learn how to bake cake, this would mean that I could eat cake whenever I want to, and so I learned how to bake cake last week. And Amanda woke up a couple of mornings ago and I had a cake for her. And we ate cake for breakfast because I would love for another person to actually bake me a cake. And so that's what I did for my wife. And I was absolutely amazed at what unfolded because as she ate my cake, she said, this is actually kind of good. And I wasn't expecting that. And yet I would say that one of the most vitally important components of any church, though, is our responsibility to our widows, to all of those who are single, who in some way, shape, or form live alone amid the deafening silence. What I want to invite us to, all of us who are not widows, all of us who are not single, is to call these individuals, write them, pray with them in a text, however it looks like, Oftentimes, all that it takes to uplift these individuals is that we write them and say, I love you, is to say, you are so special to me, and we will be amazed at what unfolds. No matter what our domestic lives look like, may our homes be houses of worship. May we embody gentleness and forgiveness and peace. May it be said of our homes, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And that house was me. And that church was my house. Now our home address is, is so much more of a church than 1326 Park Avenue could ever be. 